Well, good evening, good morning, good afternoon, whatever time of day it is when you may join. This is Reverend Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and we are in episode 258 of our Bible Bites today, and we start a new book today. We are in the book of Daniel, and we begin the book of Daniel looking at chapters 1 through 3 today in our reading as we read through God's holy word. So, today in Daniel chapters 1 through 3, let's discuss this, and we have, these are totally rich and so powerful. So, I'm going to try to go through this as quickly as I can, so it won't be a a long, drawn-out broadcast today, but there is much in Daniel chapter 1 through 3 to bring out. So, let's dig in. First of all, let's understand a little bit about the book of Daniel. Daniel, in a sense, is like an Old Testament bridge, in some ways, between the Old Testament period in Israel, historical period, the chronology of it, and the New Testament. His book covers both a historical, excuse me, record of parts of the captivity that they experienced, because Daniel was alive during the captivity. As a matter of fact, he went in the first deportation and he was there pretty much until he died. Well, until he died. So he was in Babylon for the whole of, of all of these events. So it has the historical element, but it also is much a book of prophecy about the rest of the time until the Lord's return. He takes us 2,600 years into the future and tells us from the Babylonian captivity all the way down the line about the kingdoms that would come and all of that. We'll find all of that here. We'll look at a little bit of that today. Then it also takes us through what is called by some 400 years of silence. That really is, is a misnomer but it is referring to the intertestamental period. They're not silent, but they were prophesied here by Daniel in Daniel's book. So Daniel foretold the rest of time until the coming of the Lord Jesus, and even all the way until his second coming later. The author is Daniel, and we need to understand who Daniel was. He was, most scholars believe, many scholars believe he was a royal descendant from King Hezekiah. And if you'll remember, in 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 18, there is a prophetic word to King Hezekiah that some of his descendants will be taken to Babylon. And we believe Daniel to be among one of those. We do know this, that when Nebuchadnezzar first came in 605 B.C., in that first deportation, he took with him the the best-looking, the wisest, the choice leaders of the land, choice officials, nobility, um, dignitaries, etc., from among the people. And Daniel was included in that, along with his three Hebrew friends. And this book also connects us and picks up from the chronology that ended in 2 Chronicles, and it goes into and gives us the chronology of the captivity, and then prophetically even beyond 
the Babylonian captivity into the rest of the earth, the rest of the world. In verse 2, 1 and 2, we, we read about the captives that were taken and also that they took God's holy articles or vessels. Nebuchadnezzar took them to Babylon. If you'll remember, that was King Hezekiah's, probably one of his greatest errors, and uh, Isaiah even told him so in essence, because Isaiah told him, he said, all these wonderful treasures you just showed, showed to the kings and the, the wise men and the, the, um, the special visitors you had from Babylon, all of those they're going to take to Babylon. And so, in fact, this verse tells us here in Daniel that they did, in fact, do that. In verses 3 and 4, we read about some of those that, that the king wanted to bring in that first deportation, which included Daniel. And we find out that here. And he says he wanted the ones that were nobles, young men, in whom there was no blemish, good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And so that was what they were looking for. That was their mission, and that was what they did, in fact, do with Daniel, his three friends, and others that were taken in that particular captivity early on. Now, in verse 5 through 7, we're introduced to Daniel and his three friends, and we see that they are all given Babylonian names, which we're uh, familiar with the three boys' Babylonian names, more so than we are their Hebrew names, but we're more familiar with Daniel's Hebrew name than his um, Babylonian name. We see in verses 8 and 9, evidence of their godly stance, that they were devoted to the Lord God in heaven, and nothing and no one was going to change that. And I want to note, I want you to notice a few things because this verse in verses eight and nine, it gives us a lesson to learn. It says, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. I want us to see a lesson here in the character and in the stance that Daniel and the three friends took in this particular situation. The king was going to feed them with, you know, royal dainties and, and a lot of wine and other things. And some of those things would have been unkosher to Daniel. And, and Daniel, they would have been against the law and against the requirements that God had established in terms of the dietary plan he had for his people. And so I want you to notice these things because this is lessons for us. First of all, Daniel purposed in his heart before he was ever tested, before he was ever tempted, he purposed in his heart and he set his heart to obey the Lord and to make sure that he would not get distracted, detoured, or change his mind in any way. He acted accordingly. He made a proper appeal 
because he went respectfully and requested at the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Then it goes on and talks about how God brought him into favor and goodwill of this person that he requested. That shows us he had a proper appeal. And then he also had respect for the chief of the eunuchs. He couldn't, he didn't go in there and say, I ain't doing this. This is not what God told me to eat and all this kind of stuff. No, he didn't have that kind of attitude and we don't need to have either. We learn in Daniel chapter one ways to make proper appeal and have respect for authority, even if it's ungodly authority. So we see that in his example and those are lessons we can learn. In verses 10 through 16, we see the dialogue between him and those over him of this particular appeal. And so Daniel makes a sincere, godly appeal, and he says, okay, I understand you don't want, you know, us to suffer, and then the king cut your head off because, you know, you didn't feed us right. So he says, okay, give us 10 days, test us for 10 days. Let us eat what we believe we're supposed to eat for a 10-day testing period time. And it's interesting because you'll find that 10 days of testing comes up again in the book of Revelation in chapter 2. But 10 days here represented the period of testing. And some call this a Daniel fast, um, you know, with just vegetables and water. That's, that's certainly up to you if you want to interpret it that way. And, you know, some people when they're fasting will, will do what they call a Daniel fast. And this is where it comes from. And so we see God's favor upon them because at the end of the testing period, they look better than everybody else. And they were in better condition than everybody else. So welcome to you as you're able to join in. Then in verse 17, I want you to notice this. I want to read this in chapter 1 of Daniel. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now, this is going to become important when we get to their destinies and we begin to see through this book the destinies that they have and how these gifts from God are very pertinent to where they are and what they're called to do to minister in that land. We see God's favor and promotion over them in verses 19 through 21 as well. And it says that when the king came in and they came before him and he observed them, it says he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. So this is telling us Daniel was in Babylon basically the rest of his life, and he was serving in kingships and in the king kingdoms um, that came for many, 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 many years after this. In chapter 2, we have Nebuchadnezzar's dream and its interpretation. Now, this chapter is critical, especially in its connection to one particular chapter in the New Testament, and that is Matthew chapter 2. This chapter, chapter 2 of Daniel, gives us the backstory to understand what 
Matthew chapter 2 was all about. Who were those people? Why did they come? All of that you can understand when you understand Daniel chapter 2. All right, verse 12. Okay, so we have Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And I want you to understand something. He goes in this first part of it. He calls all his magicians and everybody together. And he says, guys, I've had dreams troubling me. I want you to, to interpret it for me. And so they go, okay, tell us the dream. We'll tell you what it means. Well, if you go on down, the king is hesitant to tell them the dream. And if you go on down, you'll see that he, um, he makes it known to them. Uh, let's see. In here, he talks about, for here he says, here it is. It's, he says, this is the king answering them because they've kept trying to get him to tell them the dream. And so I see in here in his response that maybe he had some kind of suspicion that they were not telling him the truth all along, that they were lying and deceptive because he says that here in verse nine, if you do not make known the dream to me, there's only one decree for you. In other words, he had already told him, he said, tell me the dream and what it means and if you can't do that, your head's cutting off. You know, you're dead. You're dead meat. And so he says that here. He says, for you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. So in other words, he's got a suspicion that these guys aren't really for him anyway. And that maybe there's some kind of like a shadow government kind of deal thing going on. And they're just trying to play with him and play for him until um, they can, you know, either dismiss him or kill him or whatever. So he's got some kind of suspicion against him. So I want you to hear what the Chaldeans, these magicians and astrologers and all tell him. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, listen to this. There is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord or ruler, has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Now, this was the Chaldeans answering them. These were these magicians, uh, astrologers, and sorcerers, and all of that that were serving under him. And so they're telling him, there's not one man on earth that can tell you what you dreamed and tell you the interpretation. And then they say, because they believed in many gods, many different gods, they didn't believe in the only true God. So they said, there ain't nobody that can tell you what you dreamed and the interpretation except the gods. And they don't dwell with flesh. They don't dwell with men. They don't just talk to us and answer us. That was their belief. So the king starts destroying them all. He gives a command and he says, okay, all of the wise men, all of the magi, you're going to be dead. I'm going to start killing every one of you. You couldn't do what I said. Okay, so now you're going to die. So I want, to, I want you to understand this. So the decree went out and they began killing the wise men and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Because if you see earlier that Daniel had been promoted and, and uh, or Daniel is promoted here, but he was among the category of wise men here. He was among the category that was called the Magi. 
here. So they're going after Daniel too. So Daniel with counsel and wisdom, verse 14 tells us, he, he talks to the king's guard. And he says, whoa, 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 what's the meaning of this? Why are you coming to kill us? We, what have we done? You know, and so the king's guard tells him what the problem is. So Daniel goes in to the king. And, he's, and that tells us a lot about Daniel and his relationship to the king, that he could even approach the king and go in and tell him. And so he pleads with the king and he says, he says, king, give us a few, give us a few days, give us a little bit of time. And then I'll come back and I'll tell you what the interpretation is. Okay. So the king agrees. And so Daniel goes to his house and he tells his three friends and he calls a prayer meeting. That's exactly what he does. He calls for a prayer meeting. When he, when they're, they're threatened and when they don't know what the answer is and they know there's only one who does and it is the God in heaven who does in fact dwell with flesh because he, they had a relationship with this God and they said, we got to call on God. We got to go to God. So they called a prayer meeting and they got together and he says that they will seek the mercies from God of heaven. That's like that that womb of, of a woman that cherishes the baby. That's what that word is talking about. The mercies of God where he would have pity upon them and he would reveal. So God does reveal it to him. And Daniel blesses God with this beautiful psalm or song of praise, whatever you want to call it, in verse 20 through 23. He talks about <clears throat> how uh, blessed God is then he goes on, he talks about how God is the one who changes times and seasons, removes kings and raises up kings. Why? Because that was part of the interpretation that Daniel had received. And then he goes on down. He says, you are the one who reveals deep and secret things. And then he thanks God and he praises him for making it known to him. So Daniel goes and he says, hey, I can tell him. Stop, stop killing the wise men. Stop destroying. He says, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. I want you to remember that. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king and I will tell the king the interpretation. So they go in and Daniel tells him, the king says, are you able to make known to me the dream which I've seen and its interpretation? And I want you to notice in verse 27, through 30, Daniel gives God all the credit. Daniel does not take one iota of credit for himself. He gives it all to God. He says in verse 28, But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. And then he goes on down in verse 30, and he says, But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. But for our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. So he goes on and he tells him, Okay, king, this is what you dreamed. You dreamed there was this great big statue, head of gold, uh, chest of silver, you know, and he goes on down and he talks about the um, bronze. He talks about the, the chest and arms of silver, the belly and thighs of bronze, the legs of iron and the feet of iron and part clay. And he says, then notice this. 
He says, you watched and there was a stone cut without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces and the whole thing came crashing down. And he goes on down and he says, and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So in essence, in these few verses, Daniel has now given God the glory for it, but he has now, because of the Lord, revealed 2,600 and at least years of history from the time of Nebuchadnezzar until the time of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who is the stone that was cut without hands that is going to destroy all of those kingdoms. And this was given to Daniel back around 603 BC. That's been, that was 600 years before Jesus Christ. And now we're 2000 years after him. And we're all still waiting on that stone that is cut without hands. That's going to destroy all of these kingdoms. So he, he spoke in those few verses. He told 2600 plus years of history beyond his day. And that's what he revealed here. Because every one of those, he goes on down and he says, he says, okay, king, you know, the gold, the golden head is you. <clears throat> You're a king of kings, which was a title in that day. <clears throat> he says, but after you, <clears throat> another's going to arise and then a third. Um, and then the fourth one is going to be as strong as iron. And then the fifth one, you know, the one that's coming after that is going to be part iron and part clay. And we know those to be the, the various kingdoms from Babylon and Medes and Persia and Greece and Rome. <clears throat> and then the final one will be part iron and clay. And I believe we're living in the days when that is coming along. And that is considered to be the Antichrist kingdom. So Daniel goes through these 2,600 plus years. Of course, he didn't know that it was going to be that long in the, in the day that he gave it. But this, we can look back now through history and see that, okay, he gave him the rest of the story all the way up until Jesus Christ. In verse 44, it says, And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall be not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And so that is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. He is the coming king and he is coming again soon. And when he comes, he will be given an everlasting kingdom by the ancient of days. We're going to read that here in Daniel in a few days. And, and God is going to establish his kingdom. And so God gives him this whole dream interpretation and everything. Well, Nebuchadnezzar is blown away at this time and he realizes that God has truly revealed this and that truly he says this, the king says this in verse 47. Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets since you could reveal this secret. So he promotes Daniel, makes him over all of the magi. And so Daniel now is sitting in the gate of the kings. But you've got to remember, this is highly important to understand the connection to the Magi that visit baby or young child Jesus in 
Matthew chapter 2. This is the backstory. This helps us understand that. Because of Daniel, they were spared. Their ancestry was spared. Their lineage was spared because of Daniel's work here. So I, I believe they probably in some ways saw him like a hero to them. And, and Daniel had influence in that land. He was there all of the years of the captivity and lived and died in that land at that time. He was probably a teenager, most likely 13 to 15, maybe 16 or so when he went to Babylon. And he was there through the captivity until his death. And so he had a lot of influence. He was a very godly man. We see that established well in these first two books, our first two chapters of this book. And so he had a divine influence in that land in many ways. And some of that was upon the Magi. And so it was no accident that because they had understood from Daniel's prophetic word, which we'll read later in this chapter, as well as the Transjordanian um, Balaam that had also spoken in numbers about the star that would arise in, uh, in Israel and, and all of that. So they knew. And when the time came, they knew it. They knew it was Jesus. It was Daniel's king. And so now we see Magi coming to Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 2, some 600 years after this had happened. And they had been waiting for Daniel's king to be born. So this gives us a lot of the backstory to help us understand more about the Magi and their visit in Matthew chapter 2. Then in chapter 3 of Daniel, and this is where we'll draw down to a close. In chapter 3 here, there's a couple of things I want to point out. I'm not going to read a whole lot, <clears throat> although I'd love to because there's so much good here. But <clears throat> in chapter 3, we see that Nebuchadnezzar, now you have to understand there's approximately 23 years difference between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. So there's been a series of time. And in that time period, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom has expanded. He's, <clears throat> he's had two other deportations from Israel. He has uh, burned Jerusalem and destroyed it and taken all of them captive in 586. And now it's approximately 580. BC when when this is happening. And so perhaps Nebuchadnezzar has developed quite a bit of a proud streak in those 20 something years and he has forgotten that the statue was gold and silver and bronze and all of that. So he decides he's going to make it all of gold. Meaning he was he was pretty proud and he thought, "No, I'm not going to have these kingdoms after me. I'll my kingdom will just last and and we'll do this big thing." And so he makes it all of gold, and he establishes it. Then he forms it into an idol, and he basically makes everybody try to bow down to it. Now, <clears throat> the people, you have to notice here, the people that he calls are the officials, those, those that are kind of high-ranking or in, in positions of leadership and authority. And it appears that Daniel may not even be here at this time, uh, because he's nowhere mentioned in this particular episode. He, uh, some scholars believe that he was sent on official state business for the king during this time, and perhaps that is true. 
but he appear, appears to not be there at all. But the three Hebrew boys are. And we don't get the feel that other Jews are here as well because they wouldn't fit necessarily into that category. It appears that these were the, the officials and other things. You can read it for yourself and see who it was that was called. So it wasn't the whole of the land. It was certain high-ranking and leadership officials that were called to this thing. So the three Hebrew boys are among those. And so they come and they don't bow. And some of the king's men challenge them and say, hey, king, because they don't like the Jews anyway, maybe. And so they, they come to the king and they said, didn't you say that they've got a bow? And, you know, so they go through this scenario. So the king, they, they get him to understand or they get, trick him to think that they've not given respect to him. And so he calls them and he says, maybe you didn't know what I said. Maybe you didn't hear clearly, whatever. Let's try this again. So he tells them directly. And he says, you know, I'm going to play all this music. And when you hear it, bow down. And they don't bow. And, um, and, but notice this, that the king gives them a threat before, before this as well. He tells them in verse 15, he says at the end of that verse, he says, and who is the God who will deliver you from my hands. So we can see quite a change in Nebuchadnezzar in this chapter from the end of chapter 2 where he was humbled before the Lord. In chapter 3, he's developed quite a proud streak and he thinks that there's no God that could challenge him. And so the three Hebrew boys tell him these famous words from verses 16 through 18. And he says this, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, we don't need to talk about it. We don't need to pray about it. We don't need to think about it. Our mind's made up. I can tell you right now what we're going to do. <laughs> and he says, if that is the case, if you're going to throw us into this furnace, in other words, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. In other words, they were saying one way or the other, he's going to deliver us. He's either going to deliver us through the fire and we're going to face him in death or he's going to deliver us out of it somehow. But he says in verse 18, but if not, in other words, if God chooses not to deliver us from the fiery furnace, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. And beloved, I don't know what all will happen in the world before our Lord returns for us. But I do see signs, warning signs right now that anti-Christian and anti-Semitism is on the rise very, very strongly. And that's all part of that whole antichrist spirit that is in the earth today. And there, there may be a time when more Christians have got to rise up and say, just let it be known. Whether he delivers us or not, we will not bow to your gods. We will not serve the gods of man, but we will serve only the true and living God. May God prepare and raise up Christians and church, his church today, to make that kind of stand. So Nebuchadnezzar gets real mad. He throws, he turns up the fire seven times hotter, throw, has them thrown in. The men that throw them in die, and they fall bound down into the midst of the fire. In verse 24, it says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar, 
It gives us the idea with that word then that it didn't take long. It wasn't long time period. It may or may not have even been overnight. It may have been shortly right away after he threw them in. And he says, didn't we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said, true, O king. And the king says this, look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the son of God. That was, I believe, the son of the living God in that fire with them. He's the fourth man in our fires too. And he will be with us when we need him to be with us. He will walk with us. Hallelujah. So he goes near the mouth of the furnace and he calls to him and he tells him to come out. And he saw when they came out, he sees that these men, he says this, he, um, he, the satraps, the administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and they saw these men who, on whose body the fire had no power. On whose body the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. What a powerful thing. That was a miracle God did in the middle of the burning, fiery flame on the behalf of these, uh, these three men. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But notice how he, he uh, speaks. He says, blessed be the God who sent his angel. And I believe that was an, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have trusted and they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve or worship any God except their own God. In other words, he's saying they were even willing to go to the death and to, to be killed and martyred because they loved and served that God and their God only that much, and they would not bow to any other. That impressed him, and he brought that out here, that they yielded their bodies. Jesus talked about that, and he talked about not fearing those who could destroy only the body, but rather fearing God who could destroy the body and the soul. And so, beloved, they were willing to the death to serve the Lord and not be um, deterred in any way. And then King Nebuchadnezzar goes on and makes this final point that I want to end on today. He goes down in the bottom, the last part of verse 29. And this is King Nebuchadnezzar talking now. And he says, because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Beloved, we serve as Christians. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if He is your Lord and He is your Savior and the Spirit of God is living within you and your name has been written in the Lamb's Book of Life, that this same God that delivered them is the same deliverer for you today as well. And there is no other God who can deliver like this. Praise be to God that He is also our deliverer in 2021, 2020, 
just like he was 20, uh, 2,600 years ago. Praise be to God. I pray that this has blessed you today and that, Lord willing, you can join us again for future episodes of Bible Bites as we keep reading through the Holy Scriptures this year. God bless you tonight in Jesus' name.